What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Welcome to another episode. Oh, you know. It's time for the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am your host, Andrew, for America. And sorry, I had to shut the door real quick. Um, so yeah, how's it going? Welcome in. It's time for another episode of the show. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, let's see what's going on in the world. Um, well, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, and um, today I'm going to talk about uh, worldviews. Uh, I'm going to play a clip from uh, Dave Smith. Uh, you guys remember Dave Smith from last episode. Uh, he has a podcast called Part of the Problem.H, uh, he is a self-professed, uh, self-proclaimed libertarian, radical libertarian. He says, um, and he kind of talks about his worldview uh, in this clip I'm about to play. And excuse me, after I play his clip, I'm going to talk about. I'm going to play a clip by George Carlin also, where George Carlin kind of talks about the worldview that he kind of molded his act into over time, um, and. We'll play a little bit of how he went from being the guy that was kind of like the establishment comedian to kind of the anti-establishment comedian. Um, and then uh, at the end of the podcast, I want to talk about a podcast uh, I just listened to called Counterflow by Buck Johnson. Uh, Buck Johnson, um, he's a musician from Austin, Texas, who um, he, his podcast used to be called Death to Tyrants. And uh, he has recently changed the name. I think he's moving up in the world, and uh, he wanted something a little bit more uh, palatable, I guess, uh, considering that he is kind of a radical thinker as well. Uh, but he, on his uh, podcast, this recent one that I'm talking, I want to play some clips from today. Uh, he has Stefan Molyneux on, and I know just saying his name um, can summons up a lot of emotions for a lot of people. I understand he's a very controversial figure. Um, he's most controversial for talking about science that uh, is, um, you know, not very um, celebrated by the new left. Uh, they don't like him. They think he's a racist, and he's been deplatformed from a lot of places. Uh, very controversial guy, but he's also one of the most intelligent, articulate guys you'll ever uh, hear speak in your entire life. So, um, yeah. So here we go. Let me uh, let me get uh, the Dave bit up here real quick. Uh, Dave Smith uh, from his podcast, Part of the Problem, talking about how he doesn't really fit into the left or the right's uh, you know set of professed goals and ideals, and. You know how he feels it gives him a unique perspective to kind of observe and report. Uh, so here we go, Dave Smith. So I, I, you know, I really do when I look at these things. Um, I, I feel like I'm that I don't really have a dog in the fight, and I think honestly, I think that's part of the reason why I'm good at what I do um, is because I don't really have a dog in the fight, and that allows me to be a better 
analyst of all the shit that's going on. Um, I, I mean, it's not just that it's also cause I have a, you know, a consistent, uh, philosophical worldview that is irrefutable and correct. Uh, so that helps a lot, but also a big part of it is that I'm not on team left or team right. And, you know, you see this all the time with people who are on one team or the other it's, um, they, you know, part of it is that they have blind spots and they always find a way to rationalize why their team is right and the other team is wrong. Um, and then part of it also is just that they're being Machiavellian, which kind of makes sense if you're on one side or the other. I mean, you want to get your side to win. That's your goal. So it doesn't make sense to just tell the truth all the time, especially if the truth makes your side look really bad. Um, so I, I, for better or for worse, don't have any of those constraints. I, uh, I just don't think that way. And that's not what I enjoy doing. Um, so I just kind of can call balls and strikes and, and, you know, tell it like I see it, even though, as I said, it's not that I don't have a bias. I'm extremely biased, you know, uh, like I am a radical libertarian and that is, you know, how I view the world. That's the side I'm on. But even like when it comes to the libertarian party or something like that, as you guys know, I'm often very critical of them because I'm just, I, I tell the truth as I see it, uh, again, not to say I can't be wrong, but I really, at least, uh, um, philosophically, I really don't think I'm right or left. And that doesn't mean that I can't, you know, um, at times favor one side or the other. Uh, and it doesn't mean that I can't address the reality of the situation we're living through right now. But I just don't think in the purest philosophical form, you know, generally, traditionally speaking, the, the left is basically defined as, you know, egalitarian. Um, for kind of on the spectrum from like egalitarian to, you know, straight up equity. Um, and, um, I just, you know, I reject all of that, I'm not an egalitarian at all. I don't think, um, I don't think people are equal and I don't think they should be treated equal or valued equally. I think that people are, uh, individuals and are uniquely different. Um, some people are better than others at lots of different things. And, uh, that, that I, you know, I certainly don't believe in equity. I think that's just, um, insane. And then on the right, um, you know, traditionally philosophically, they're more in support of tradition and hierarchy and customs and norms. And again, that that's not really how you could possibly describe me. I mean, I'm an anarchist. I, I am, uh, actively opposed to the most hierarchical structure uh, that exists in societies, which are, you know, governments. Um, and so I just don't, I don't really fit into either. And that's why uh, I, you know, most left wingers uh, consider me a right winger and most right wingers consider me a left winger. Um, and, you know, we're just over here as Walter Block puts it being the third leg on the stool. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you know, Dave's a standard comedian. So, you know, I think that part's hilarious where he says, you know, um, I have a worldview that is irrefutable and correct, and that helps. <laughs> you know, I mean, some libertarians, you know, feel that way. I mean, they've, they've really ripped apart their arguments from both sides, from every direction, um, for so long that, you know, it's kind of like that Francis Bacon when he said, you know, begin with your doubts and you shall end in certainties. You know, don't think you know everything. And do the research, look things up, you know, vet your ideas after you let them swirl around your brain for a little bit. 
You know, your worldview is a very important thing, people. And if you get 100% of the news and information that you process about the world from social media and the mainstream media, your, your worldview is, I've said it before, it's probably flawed. It's probably very flawed. And I honestly, I don't, I, I honestly don't understand what it is about the two-party system that people, you know, I, you know, I don't understand how, you, how people still hang in there. Like, I really think that the, the, uh, the main reason why people identify as left or right is because their parents felt a certain way and they leaned the way that their parents did. Um, no thought, no emotion, maybe a little bit of thought. Maybe their parents explained a little bit to them, you know, hey, we're for unions or we're not for unions or we're for capitalism or we're not for capitalism. And, you know, maybe here's why. And they'll give you a few little things here. But if you don't really do your own research and you don't really read and and process information in your own way so that you can come to your own conclusions and decide for yourself who you are on that spectrum, you know, dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery, and, you know, just listening to Dave Smith explain his worldview right there is, you know, I mean, doesn't it sound radical? You don't hear perspectives like that on the mainstream media very often, do you? And the reason why just listening to him tell you honestly, articulately, how he feels about topics and issues and how, how he views the world, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, I know people on the left that probably turn that off halfway through. Oh, nope, he's saying things that contradict anything that my TV told me and anything that's not uh, in accordance with the party line. And so he must be a racist, sexist, misogynist, you know, um, whatever, you know, fill in your favorite left-wing progressive, you know, tear down word because they, you know, they like to shut down thinking. They don't like to think. They don't want to explore their own ideas or their own um, worldviews. No, 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 no. No, the, uh, my worldview is what the government tells me my worldview is. My worldview is what the TV and the whoever tells me it is. No thought, you know, it's just, it's gross. I don't understand. I don't understand. It's really sad, man. It's just, it's really sad that people can't even talk about ideas anymore. I mean, I really do feel like it's the beginning of the end for this country. We can't even talk. We can't even... We can't even, you know, Stefan Molyneux is going to tell you in this clip later on how, you know, actually, there's actual research that shows that when people are confronted with cognitive dissonance and confronted with challenges to their ideas, that they actually dig in and they become more tribal and they become more violent and they become more emotional and more nut job. <laughs> and, you know, that's what this podcast is about today is just... You know, how, how do you define your worldview? How would you define your worldview? If I were to say, hey, tell me what your worldview is. How do you, how do you see things, you know? Are you an empiricist? Are you a determinist, philosophically? Are you, um, you know, are you really big on mob rule and majority rule and democracy? Or do you think that the rule of law and enforcing the rule of law is very important and you want to live in a constitutional republic with a document that is the written word that, uh, describes the social contract that you agree to and outlines the boundaries, the rights that are not to be infringed on. You know, all this stuff is important, people. Okay? Like, we got to start talking about this stuff and thinking about it. How do, how do we come to our worldview? Well, first of all, if you don't ever travel, 
and you don't see the world. And, you know, the, the, the farthest distance you've traveled for the majority of your life is within the 25, 30 uh, mile radius from your small town rural community. Uh, you got a problem. Your worldview is going to be considerably different from someone who's traveled the world and been, you know, walked with people from many different cultures and walks of what of life, rather. And, uh, you know, different backgrounds. You know, if you don't have those experiences and you don't have the opportunity to go out in the world and, and seek out new people, new culture, you know, new places, new things, etc., then, you know, you can see how, it, it, you know, by no fault of your own, is your worldview going to be a little bit, you know, more flawed, maybe, for lack of a better word. Or, you know, you just don't have the education and the experience. You have to get educated and you have to go have experiences if you're going to develop a worldview that is irrefutable and correct. <laughs> uh you know, the two-party system, people, I, I, you know, I, I'm going to devote my life to destroying it. <laughs> you know, I already have. And that's what I want you guys to take away from this podcast today, is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play some clips from some very smart people talking about their worldview and talking about who they are and how they view the world and what they think is moral and what they think should or shouldn't be legal, etc. Okay, so here we go. Here's a little bit of George Carlin. George Carlin, uh, in this first clip I'm going to play for him, he's talking about how he um, developed his comic voice over time. Okay, so here we go. I was a victim of my own success, and I did some Ed Sullivans I hate. On those Ed Sullivan shows, I began to realize, uh, not just there, everywhere, all these shows, I didn't fit. And here's what I was missing. I was missing who I was. I began with a dream of being Danny Kay, which is a very mainstream dream. It's very middle America. It's a people pleaser job. And I dreamed a path that was traditional. Comedian, a disc jockey, comedian, actor, big success. A mainstream dream. Meanwhile, what I really was, was an outlaw and a rebel because I had lived in that kind of life. I got kicked out of three different schools. I got kicked out of the Air Force. I got kicked out of the choir. I got kicked out of the altar boys. I got kicked out of summer camp. I got kicked out of the Boy Scouts. And I quit school at ninth grade. I had great marks. I was a smart kid, but I didn't care. They weren't teaching what I want. I didn't give a shit. It's important in life if you don't give a shit. It can help you a lot. So I didn't give a shit. And I was this kind of, I was a pot smoker when I was 13. We broke the law, we broke into cars, we broke into offices, we broke into Columbia University, we broke into stores. We did all sorts of unlawful things. And I was that kind of person. I was one who swam against the tide of what is expected and what is uh, what the establishment wants from us. But I didn't know that about myself. Because this dream blinded me. This dream was about America, about the path that we all follow, the middle of the road, middle class, America, mainstream, will dream. And, and being meanwhile, I'm sitting there like this, you know, fuck those people. Fuck that shit. Look at this stupid shit. No, I don't want to be in the bunny number. Can I get out of the bunny number, please? I don't want to put on that fucking uniform. You know, and, and, and I didn't know this dissonance was inside me. And... In the period this is happening, all through the 60s, 
The counterculture was forming. The free speech movement started in Berkeley. The hippies were growing into a force. And peace, love, power, love, flower power, pot smoking, anti-authority. See, bing, 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 anti-authority. Pro of the establishment. Burn down the math building? Wow! Ding, 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 ding. So I gravitated toward that because I was that person, really. And... And the people I hung around with were that way. The, the musicians I knew in the late 50s had gone through that transition. Suddenly they looked different, and their music changed. And I'm listening to people like the Buffalo Springfield. I'm listening to Bob Dylan. I'm listening to these people, and I realize these artists are using their talent to project their feelings and ideas, not just please people. And I suddenly was able to see my place and to realize I was in the wrong place. You see, in 1967, the summer of love, the peak of the hippie movement, I was 30. I was entertaining people in nightclubs who were 40. And they were at war with their kids who were 20. There was a generation war. I was in the middle of it. I was 30, 20, 40. And I'm going, see, what the fuck am I doing over here? These are the people that will at least understand me and give me a chance. So it took two years. I didn't go to the mountain and come back different. I didn't do a Bobby Darren. I didn't do a whatever you know, those people who just go away and they're back new suddenly. I took two years to change, and it happened on television. So it was it, I had I had denied that part of myself, and finally it came into full flower. And I never became a really big success until that. I probably had uh, 200 television appearances by that time, and I still wasn't realized as a as a writer, <laughs> as a comedian. I, I, by that I mean I hadn't let myself grow into that, and and I found out later I was more than just a comedian. Very fascinating, very fascinating stuff by old George Carlin. So that's him talking about, you know, being who you really are, and how it took him a long time to realize himself and realize who he was. You know, he was living this lie. He, you know, it, it was probably the propaganda and the programming from his era. You know, he thought he needed to, to be a people pleaser. He thought he needed to be, you know, this idea of a successful comedian through the lens of the status quo of the 50s and the 60s, early 60s. And... Then the counterculture started, and then the hippie movement came, and then all the stuff, he started realizing that he was identifying with the wrong group of people. And the reason why I love that story, that honest story about the struggle of thought, and the struggle of having to self-reflect, and self, um, you know, identify with who you really are. It's not easy, people. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And, you know, that's what I want you guys to take out of this podcast today is you're going to hear some points of view, like I said, from multiple different people that are successful in their own right and who have very um, similar worldviews as myself. So obviously I'm biased to all these worldviews because I see myself in them and I can identify, I can relate with what these guys are saying about who they are and about how they view the world and about how their experiences and and the, doing the work of thinking has made them reflect and then they were courageous enough to take action 
and to change their act or change their uh, opinion or whatever whatever it is. So people, it's okay. It's okay to change your mind when you are presented with new information. In fact, you should. Remember like what John Locke said? As soon as I figure out something isn't, you know, what I believe in, my hand should be the quickest to throw it into the fire or whatever it was. You got to quit pretending to be something you're not and have the courage to find out who you really are. It's got to start inside first, right? Okay? So... Now that you guys kind of have an idea of where I'm going with this podcast today, you just listened to Carlin tell you about how he developed over time his comic voice. And now I'm going to play a clip of how who he turned into and who he became. And you can definitely see the difference in his work from, like he said, it happened on TV. He flipped the switch in one of his uh, specials. Um, it might have been Life is Worth Losing, or I don't remember which one. It might have been even before that. But he became a different guy. And some would argue he became a way better, way more successful stand-up comedian after the fact. So here we go. Here's Carlin on his new comic voice. Develop a different comic voice and a, and a different perspective. Um, you know, comedy, stand-up comedy is a low art. It's it's a vulgar art. It's an art of the people. It's not but fine. But it's an art. But it is an art. It's, it, it has to do with interpreting the world as you see it and then writing something and then delivering it verbally. Uh, and I found a very liberating position for myself as an artist. And that was I sort of gave up on the human race and gave up on the American dream and culture and nation and decided that I didn't care about the outcome and that gave me a lot of freedom from a kind of distant platform to be sort of uh, amused uh, a a kind of uh, to watch the whole thing with a combination of wonder and pity and try to put that into words not caring about the outcome what do you mean by that not having an emotional stake in whether this experiment with human beings works I really don't care. Uh, I love people as I meet them one by one. People are are just wonderful as individuals. You see the whole universe in their eyes if you look carefully. But as soon as they begin to group, as soon as they begin to clot, when there are five of them or ten, or even groups as small as two, they begin to change. They sacrifice the beauty of the individual Mm -hmm. for the sake of the group. I decided it was all under the control of groups now, whether it's business, religion, political people or what, and I would distance myself from wishing for a good outcome. Let it do what it's going to do. Yeah. And I'll enjoy it as an entertainment. And I'll reflect on what it is on its own. And I'll enjoy it for the entertainment. There's a little bit of a sick part in this, too. Yeah. I root for the big comet. I root for the big asteroid to come <laughs> yeah. and make things right. That's yeah, the way right. I put it. Stir the, things up. Yes, bec- to get us back where we were before the yeah. first one came and knocked out these dinosaurs and yeah. let the ferrets we're grow. We're talking about comets on this show tonight. I know. Uh, and I'm, I'm rooting for that big one to come right through that hole in the ozone layer because I want to see it on CNN. See, I'm here for the entertainment, Charlie. I am. <laughs> People, these philosophers say, why are we here? I know I am here. For the entertainment. The show. Bring it on. I want to see the circus. Yeah. But so, how does this affect your performance and what you bring to stand-up? Well, well I've seen a lot of c- comedians, we've all seen a lot of comedians who seem to have a political bent in their work. And always implicit in the work is, is some positive outcome, that this is all going to work. If only we do this, if only we pass that yeah. bill, if only we elect him, if only we do that. It's not true. It's, it's circling the drain time for, the, for humans. I believe this. I honestly believe this. Not just as a comedian, he thinks that. He likes yeah, to say right, that. Yeah. I believe it. And when you say to yourself, I don't care what happens, it just gives you a broader perspective for the art, for the words to, to emerge. To not care. That's what happened in that 92 show. That's why I could say the planet is fine, the people are 
Because the planet will outlast us. It will be here and it will be fine. Has the subject matter changed? Well, I, I, you know, you're still stuck with what's going on. Yeah. But I, I don't like topical. I don't like political humor. I, I don't mention politicians. In fact, I defend them in this particular show. Uh, everyone is on their Everyone is always making the things. I, I defend them and blame it on the people. This is where it belongs. Yes. You In get fact, what I, you deserve? Yes, you get what you deserve, I and mean, you deserve what you get. <laughs> and I have a slogan, the public sucks. And yeah. it works nicely, and people accept it. Not, not, not very enthusiastically, yeah. but they understand that it says we the people in that preamble. It doesn't say them the thises and those the thats. Yeah, it, it says, hey. We got on this boat. And people who hate government are involved in a, in a form of suicide because government is self-government. And if you hate the government, you, you hate, hate yourself. yourself. Yeah. It's the same with the war against nature that, that mankind goes through. So I just said to myself, it's not going to get better, not in my lifetime. Let me enjoy this and get a little perverse about my, my commentary on it. I, I, I open what does perverse mean, though? Well... To, to look for where the people think the line is. The people have values that these things, these, these amorphous things they call values yeah. that they bring to, to, the, to the seat in the theater when they sit down. Yeah. And I like to find out where their line may be and deliberately cross it, disturb <laughs> them a little, make them uncomfortable, yeah. and then make them, and then bring them with me across the line and make yeah. them glad they came. That's what I do. I'm an entertainer. I'm not a doomsayer. I'm not here to preach. I don't do political tracts. But I do entertain. I do a lot of jokes. But I want you to feel a little in danger along the way. So, <laughs> so you know, there's Carlin on his, you know, sick, twisted view of the world, some would say. Or some might say his very honest well thought out, realistic view of the world. You know, it's a dangerous time out there, people. It's a dangerous time to be an intelligent, um, opinionated person. They're trying to shut down thought at every turn. It's scary. It's it's scary. And, you know, I don't know... Excuse me, where this is going to end. You know, what is the logical end of this? You know, martial law? I mean, you know, totalitarian dictatorship? I don't know. But, uh, you know, and then if you guys remember the Carlin bit I played, uh, you know, the American dream, you got to, you know, you know, it's called the American dream because you got to be asleep to believe it. That bit that I played for you guys and I think it was episode three. You know, that's that's the outcome. That's the outcome of, you know, being on the Ed Sullivan show and wanting to be Danny Kay and transforming into <laughs> George Carlin becoming his authentic self where he talks about his honest worldview. You know, it's just, it's very interesting to me and I hope it is to you to hear other people talk about their struggle. You know, talk about... Um, you know, the discomfort of thought. You know, John F. Kennedy once said, all too often we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And that's real. That's, that's, that's real talk right there, people. You know, honest uh, critical analysis is not comfortable sometimes. You may, you know, fall upon uh, believing in something that is, you know, the status quo publicly viewed as 
as not good. You know, domestic terrorists or conspiracy theorists. You know, just because you were interested in somebody's point of view that you saw on some video. Like, I'm not, I'm not defending the QAnoners amongst us, but I am defending whoever made those videos. I mean, propaganda people, yes, it's effective. Yes, I've railed against it for, you know, every single episode pretty much so far. But there is something to be said for being authentic, being honest, and not being afraid of being authentic and honest in public. That's where a lot of the problems with people and their relationship to government and their relationship to politics, that's where it starts. And sadly, that's where it ends, before the thought process and, you know, the trying to locate yourself on the spectrum, before any of that even begins, it's already shut down. And that's by design, people. You can't be one of these people that just watches the news, quote unquote, and pays attention to whatever feed, you know, your social media feed tells you about, you know, what's going on in the world. It's, it's, that's not, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. So I want, I want you guys to find the courage to self-reflect and locate yourself in the world. Where do you stand on issues? Not am I a lefty or am I a righty? No, no, no. Where do I personally stand on each issue uh, in its, you know, entirety, but in its, like, in one by one, step by step? You know, you got to get away from the herd mentality. What, what do you feel like? Oh, well, my party believes in this. No, 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 no. It's not about what your party believes. It's about what you believe. Your party doesn't have responsibilities. You have responsibilities. The government or any other group construct, does not have responsibilities. People have responsibilities. And the, and the more we run from those responsibilities, the worse and worse and worse and considerably, degeneratively worse this country is going to get. I'm going to take a break. When I come back, we're going to play uh, some clips from a very controversial guy, Stefan Molyneux. Empiricist philosopher, former software developer. Um, uh, I think he's a libertarian who believes in the non-aggression principle. So it's hilarious that you know he's being deplatformed all over the place. And the reason why people, the reason why he's being deplatformed, is because his philosophy and his worldview is a direct, <laughs> a direct threat to communism, to the progressive movement, and to everything that the media and the government have been trying to shove, jam down your throats ever since Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And even before that, even before that, they were setting it up under Obama. So if you've never heard of Stefan Molyneux, uh, you're going to hear a very articulate, uh, very intelligent guy who is controversial to some people, not to me. People who are honest and well thought out to me aren't controversial. <laughs> they shouldn't be controversial. The fact that they are controversial speaks directly to the problem with the society that I have been trying to point out and that I've been talking about. Okay? I hope this stuff is interesting to you guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be right back.
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Okay, so welcome back. Um, So I kind of want to change gears slightly. I mean, you know, we're talking about worldviews today. uh, But I want to kind of set up this next clip. So I'm going to start playing... A few clips from this uh, podcast called Counterflow with Buck Johnson. Um, Dissident voices, uh, unapproved opinions is his slogan. So uh, if you like my podcast, uh, I highly recommend his. I'm sure you're going to like it a lot. Um, He recently had Stefan Molyneux on. And if you don't know about Stefan Molyneux, very controversial guy. Um, He is an empiricist philosopher. He is a former... um, a software developer who didn't want to do that for the rest of his life, and uh, he's a free market advocate. He is a libertarian thinker, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, I want to play this first clip because I love what how he answers this question. So, Buck Johnson asks him, um, you know, he says Jeff Dice uh, says that we are living in a post-persuasion world, and meaning, and what he means by that term is that people don't want to reason and have conversations anymore their worldview is completely created and you know to the level of the bra- the propaganda has brainwashed some of these people on such a level that um you know it's like everything i've been talking about like even if you even like a kgb guy said even if you show this person facts and evidence they'll just they still will just dig in become more tribal become more erratic become more emotional and it's scary and um, I, I love Stefan Molyneux's answer to this question. And then he starts kind of talking about the George Floyd trial that's coming up. And, you know, it's a very uh, big deal for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of emotional connections to this trial. Uh, I live in Minneapolis where it all occurred. So, you know, I'm, I'm front row. I got a front row seat to this story. Uh, and very, very interesting what Molyneux says about living in a post-persuasion world. And the evidence he gives to support his claims uh, are, uh, you know, he uses this upcoming George Floyd trial. So here we go. Uh, here is Stefan Molyneux on the Buck Johnson Counterflow uh, podcast. Regard. Yeah, no doubt. And Jeff Deist often says we're living in post-persuasion America over here. And I'm guessing maybe you would probably say we're kind of in a anti-philosophical moment right now as well. Is that correct in your view? Huh, that's interesting. So post-persuasion. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, just look at the George Floyd trial that's coming up, right? Yeah. And you already have activists who are out there and they have a um an outcome that they demand, right? They, they demand, of course, that Chauvin and the others are, are guilty of the most heinous crimes and should be thrown in jail and the lock to their jail cell door thrown away or eaten by Jabba the Hutt or something like that. And so there is this, okay, we're not going to wait for the process to figure out, to come about. We're not going to wait for facts to emerge. I mean, basically, we're back to the days of lynching. Yes. Where the, the mob is absolutely certain of the outcome. That is the only just, reasonable, and possible outcome. They're not waiting for the evidence. 
The media, of course, is fanning all these flames. They're not providing contacts. The guy had COVID. George Floyd had hypertension. He'd ingested a significant amount of uh, fentanyl. He complained that he couldn't breathe before. The officers took him down. He was resisting arrest. Uh, all, All of this context. And of course, he had been an extraordinarily violent criminal in the past. Uh, He had uh, broken into a house and jammed a gun into a pregnant woman's belly, demanding money and drugs. And of course, that it was a legal procedure that was being done, that they they excited delirium and and other problems that people just kind of fade out when they uh, get arrested, that he was going back to jail almost certainly for a very long time. And he was a big guy. The offices were pretty small. So all of this context. And again, whether they're innocent or whether they're guilty, I just want to wait for the process to work out. But there's a lot of context. But um, a context doesn't, and sadly, doesn't breed ratings these days. Mm-hmm. So if you just look at that particular instance where there's a lot of complication and, and people look at, oh, there's a white cop kneeling on a black guy who says he can't breathe. He's choking him out. And it's all based on racism and it's straight up murder. And in the past, of course, if, if, you know, if a black man was seen running away from a white woman's house and she'd been raped, they would just chase him down and hang him. No due process, no lawyers, no uh, examining your witnesses, no evidence uh, requirements, no innocent until proven guilty. And everybody said that was a terrible thing. And they're right. It was a terrible thing. But unfortunately, now we're back to just this is the results that people want. And if they don't get the results that they want, well, they're just going to riot. And I was sort of at the forefront of this because um, well, this is back five, five or six years ago. I started, when I was giving a speech in Detroit at a men's rights conference, bomb threats, death threats, uh, and all of that, you got to speak under that cloud. They didn't succeed at that time, but then as they, it escalated when I toured Australia and New Zealand with Lauren Southern, you know, bomb threats, death threats, uh, violence against supporters, buses getting tipped over. I mean, it was really uh, feral out there. And it wasn't that people had arguments that they wanted to deploy against me. If they wanted to deploy arguments against me, we had a whole Q&A session. And I've always welcomed, you know, I mean, if I'm wrong about controversial issues, help me out of my era. Like I'd be thrilled to, to drop some of the stuff that's more controversial. It's just, you know, I'm kind of beholden to the truth. But rather than helping me out by pointing out my errors, uh, people just, you know, use violence and, and attack. And same thing happened in Vancouver. I tried to give a speech and there was uh, threats and violence and the people who are on the receiving end of that, they even called 911. Nobody showed up. So, yeah. So, I mean, I've sort of been, I suppose, at the cutting edge of this, you know, they say cancel culture, but it's not really cancel culture. It's just straight up violence. I mean, violence in pursuit of a political goal is kind of the definition of terrorism. Mm-hmm. So when the fist has replaced the word, right? When when the, the bullet has replaced the tongue, and when it's swords, not words, they add that little S to words and you get swords, it turns into a whole different situation. And so where decisions are being or where outcomes are being decided through violence, right? And of course, the the jurors in this George Floyd trial are going to face, if their names get out, a huge amount of aggression against them if they vote in a way that the mob doesn't want them to vote. And if they vote to acquit, because I think that these guys were overcharged, and then uh, what's going to happen? We know there's going to be riots and, and dozens or hundreds of people are going to die and billions of dollars of worth of property damage is going to occur. And this is how decisions are being made anymore. And you don't bring a PowerPoint to a riot. <laughs> it's just not going to do you much good. So uh, to, and, and also when you bring the wrong tool to the job, you're, you're um, discrediting everything that you do. So you don't, you, know, you don't bring out reasoned arguments in a mugging. And you don't bring philosophy to uh, what is essentially a knife fight that discredits philosophy because as a philosopher, you should know what philosophy is for. And philosophy is, is for convincing people who respond 
to reason and evidence. And right now we have a society where uh, people are so programmed and and uh, unaware, low information, counter information, that when they encounter information that goes against their perceived narrative, they actually harden their position. Mm-hmm. Like bringing reason and evidence to most people these days makes them more committed to anti-rationality. That's not just my opinion. I did a whole presentation called The Death of Reason, when you sort of, this is a very well-known phenomenon that you provide counter evidence and people harden their original irrational position. So at this point, uh, things just, they have to play out. You know, people who won't learn from reason, then they have to learn from bitter experience. There's no, there's no, there's no magic other solution, you know, like either the drug addict quits his drugs or he has to hit rock bottom or he's going to die. And uh, at this point, I've done the intervention for, you know, I did the intervention for a sort of 14, 15 years. And now I'm observing the decline and we'll see how it plays out. I know exactly how it's going to play out. I did a whole thing on the fall of Rome. So you know how it's going to play out. And hopefully credibility will return to those who made correct predictions. But right now, it's a fever dream. And it's sort of like uh, trying to stand up for the witches in the Salem witch trial. Uh, It doesn't really do you much good. You have to wait for history. You have to wait for the hysteria to collapse. And all the people who thought they were heroes during this time, like in in the McCarthyist time, all the people who thought they were heroes when they were prosecuting Socrates or throwing Mm -hmm. Galileo in prison and torturing him, all of those people who thought they were heroes, well, history has its own say afterwards. And they then have to, they they usually don't live to see what villains they actually became uh, or were, but but weren't aware of it. So at this point, I think, you know, I've made my predictions, how things are going to go. And uh, hopefully some credibility will return to those who predicted bad outcomes from all of these irrational ideas and uh, being in the realm of politics at the moment when it is the uh, the fist that is is making the final decisions you know uh, words are merely words they can only convince the rational okay i love i love that i love that clip so much um so before i get to stefan molyneux kind of talking about his worldview and uh being an empiricist philosopher, I just want to comment on a couple of, I mean, he's so good at, at word association uh, to paint a picture in your head. And, you know, that's that's the world we're, we're facing right now, people. If you're a well-thought-out, well-connected, educated, uh, curious, um, interested, you know, you're using your reason because you want to find solutions to problems and you want, you're, you know, you're looking for what's best for the whole, and this is what you're up against. You know, this cancel culture and this progressive movement, they don't want reasoned arguments. You know, he likened their behavior to mob rule into lynching. It's like everything that the left and the progressives rail against, they actually commit. The crimes they claim to hate so much, are they're committing them simultaneously in the same breath. And the media fans the flames. They provide no context is what Stefan says, you know, and he says it discredits philosophy when you bring the wrong tool to the fight. You know, you don't bring a PowerPoint presentation to a riot. You know, uh, the fist has replaced the word. You know, they, they, they want outcomes to be decided by violence and not to be decided by the rule of law. The bullet has replaced the tongue. Swords, not words. Powerful verbal imagery. I love 
his his um you know explanation to that are we living in a post persuasion america and you know the reason that I, that this pertains to the whole worldview conversation today is because that's where we're at people sadly you know so many people have failed to heed the warnings of many 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 very intelligent people throughout history and I, you know how many times have I said it that that quote that it's it, I know it's cliche but it's it holds true those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it and humans are fallible so we just keep repeating it repeating it repeating it we forget our past we forget our history and then we start falling into the same traps and making the same decisions and experiencing the same horrors you know maybe it's human nature and maybe it's a, it is a pipe dream to think that it's ever going to get better you know I don't know, but you know, there's all these facts, all these facts that that surround the George Floyd situation too, and, and, and none of it matters. None of it matters. Facts, evidence, reasoned arguments, none of it matters. The mob wants blood. The mob wants violence because they don't know any other way to resolve their differences and and to get their grievances redressed. They don't know it. And the media fans the flames. So, you know, it's like, it's like, um, like previously, like what, what, you know, is it, um, you know, it doesn't suit you to be about truth and to hold finding uh, absolute truth to be more important than your team winning. Especially, you know, like uh, Dave Smith said, when, especially when the truth might make your, your team look bad. <laughs> you know, that's what propaganda is for, people. Propaganda is so to make you forget, to distract you, to throw you off the scent. So because of all of these things, people, that is why the rule of law and facts and evidence matter. It matters more than anything, more than your opinion, more than how things make you feel in your emotions. None of that crap matters. Facts, evidence, reasoned arguments, moral philosophy, that's what matters. That's why we have to be focusing on this stuff, okay? Uh, here's another clip from Stefan Molyneux. And I love this because, you know, he, uh, I think um, Buck Johnson sets to set this up. He says, you know, uh, how have things changed uh, in the post-Trump world, I think he says. And before he even gets to talking about Trump, which I'm not going to play for you, if you guys want to see and hear him talking about Trump, you can go listen to the Counterflow podcast Buck, uh, with Buck Johnson. But uh, I love how he answers this question before he even answers the question. So here we go. The Trump years change certain things of maybe how you viewed politically charged issues and, and the way I, I think one of his brilliant I don't know if this was on purpose or not, but the brilliance of the Trump phenomenon to me is so many people were unmasked. So many forces. <laughs> yeah, no pun intended with the mask these days. <laughs> I remember that was just a phrase. Yeah, exactly. But it red-pilled so many people like boomer conservatives, like my parents, for instance, now see things much different than they used to. And I think that's a silver lining of, of the Trump years. How did what happened in the last five years changed the way you viewed certain issues? Well, 
I believe I'm an empiricist. I love the scientific method, and in a rational philosophy, evidence trumps theory, right? Like in a in a Platonic philosophy, theory trumps evidence because there are all these perfect ideas out there that don't correspond to things in the world. But reason is derived. Like, what is reason? Reason is consistency in thought that is derived from the consistency of matter. I mean, think of all of the physical principles that you and I are relying on, Buck, just to have this conversation. You know, like the, the uh, electricity and gravity and light and all of the consistent realities that we are relying on just to have this conversation. The fact that we have to trust at least our hearing mm-hmm. to some degree. We have to trust that language has some capacity for meaning and that there's productivity in this discourse and so on, which there is. So all of these physical principles are absolute and universal and consistent. And that's where reason comes from as a whole. So I'm very much one for if you have a theory, you test it against the evidence. And Trump was a giant test of the evidence, right? So the theory goes something like this. Politics is bullshit. Like this is the theory, right? The theory is that politicians will lie to you and bribe you and then not deliver on what you want, right? That's sort of the theory, right? Now, and, and also everybody who is put in front of you as a potential potentate, right? As a potential person who's in charge has already been vetted by the establishment or what some people call the permanent bureaucracy or the deep state or whatever it is. So everyone who's presented to you as an option is already compromised and owned and they have compromise or blackmail or whatever it is, right? So this idea that you're just going to, you have a particular preference, I want X, Y, and Z, and then you go and find a politician who says he's going to do X, Y, and Z, you vote for him, and then you get X, Y, and Z. Like that's the basic idea behind democracy. Now, many years ago, I said, you know, that uh, choosing a different president is like choosing a different hood ornament on the car that runs you over, right? It doesn't really make any difference to the final outcome. And people didn't, didn't believe me, right? They're, oh, we're going to vote for it. We're going to organize. We're going to, you know, get the Libertarian Party is going to do this. And Ron Paul is going to do that. And we're going to get all these great things. And it's like, no, no, no. The data is pretty clear. Like the, the, they've tracked this stuff very closely. A lot of researchers have tracked this stuff very closely. And they say, okay, this is what the general population wants. Did the general population want mass migration? Well, of course not, because mass migration harms those particularly at the bottom of the economic ladder by continually driving down wages. And then you get all these cultural issues. Everyone gets accused of racism all the time. You get cancel culture. Like, why, why would you want this? Right. And so people don't particularly want that kind of stuff. Do people like government schools? No, they don't, which is kind of why they have to be forced at gunpoint to fund them. So people don't really like government schools. Do they like teachers unions? No, they don't really like teachers unions at all. Do they like free speech? Yeah, for the most part, people like free speech. And so, and, and do they, do they like communism? Well, no. Well, then why are they forced to fund communists uh, teaching in, in schools and in universities all over the place, right? So people have these kind of preferences. And if you ask them what their preferences are, they're pretty clear about them. And public policy, I mean, they've, again, they've done these scatter charts, right? Public policy versus what people actually want, what they clearly express that they actually want. Public policy versus what people say they want. No connection. And in fact, the estimate is about 70% of people in America have zero impact on public policy. 70% of people in America have zero impact on public policy. So Trump was a giant experiment. Okay, so... You know, obviously, you guys probably already know where I'm going to go with this one. You know why I love that answer so much? Because before he even gets to talking about Trump, he says, in a very long-winded, well-thought-out, educated, Stefan Molyneux way, 
he tells you guys that it doesn't matter. The presidents are vetted. They are selected. They are not elected. He is telling you about the deep state. He's telling you about the big club right there. That's what he was talking about. And, (laughs) you know, every politician that is presented to you is compromised. And people, 70% of, what do you say, 70% of people have no, or no, 70% of the population have no impact on public policy. And, you know, he's, he's, when he talks like this, people, he's quoting studies. And that's what he got in trouble for. He got in trouble for a study that talked about uh, IQs and mental abilities uh, between the races. And, you know, the findings of this study, allegedly, uh, you know, are very controversial. They may, they may suggest trends and themes in societies throughout history that people are not comfortable with and do not agree with and do not do not want to believe uh, the possibility that it might be true. And I'm not even going to get into it because I don't want to get deplatformed and I'm not going to talk about it. But isn't it scary and sad that we that's the world we live in? You know, I have no agenda. I'm just an outsider commenting, you know, calling balls and strikes like Dave Smith said or like George Carlin just a passive observer whose job is just to watch the show, watch the freak show. To observe and report. I find that to be my calling as well. And because of the the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, the status quo of the year 2021, <clears throat> we have to be afraid. We're supposed to be scared to engage in conversation. We're supposed to be scared to engage in rational thought. Everything needs to be from a place of emotion. If you're not outraged, then you're not paying attention. We believe survivors. Uh, you know, uh, this per- you know this person uh, is a racist, sexist, misogynist. But uh, you know, when people from my party and my team uh, are racist, sexist, misogynist, you know, we don't talk about that. Oh, it's okay because they're on our team. They're on our team. You see, you see how that's not being intellectually honest. Those people are not on a quest for absolute truth. Those people are not on a quest to find the solutions to the problems that will benefit the whole. Those people are Machiavellian. They're trying to win. They're trying to get their team to win. It's a will to power. And Molyneux here coming up is going to say that that's where the world's going. It's becoming a Nietzschean will to power world where morality doesn't matter anymore. All the religions, Christianity specifically, are going away uh, to a more secular, a more humanist, a more uh, atheist type of world. And he asked the question, like, without that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not, but you cannot run from the fact, people, that a lot of morality and a lot of reasoned arguments throughout human history and the Enlightenment thinkers and the social contract theorists, etc., 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 all had the best intentions of the whole in mind. Period. I don't care if you disagree with that. It's a fact. It's a fact, people. 
Did racism exist? Did slavery exist? Yes. Yes, it did. Did the people that own slaves uh, have reasoned, rational arguments, well thought out, educated, uh, using the scientific method over time, trial and error, figuring it out? Did they have a plan to create a better, more equal, more freer union, society for everyone? The answer Yes. You got to get this stuff through your heads. You got to get this stuff through your heads, people. What are we going to do? Are we just going to play this, oh, everyone's racist, everyone's a sexist. Uh, Somebody call the ambulance. Are we just going to play this childish game forever? Like, I feel like I live in in a country that was created for children. Like, I feel like I took a wrong turn around some you know, galaxy, and I got dropped off in a parallel universe where everyone's, you adults are acting like children. They're walking around throwing temper tantrums, getting people fired, deplatformed, because you don't have the balls to think. And you're too afraid for someone to point out the flaws in your thinking. I'm telling you, we're going nowhere fast, people. We keep this up. We keep this stupid childish crap Idiot, moron, binary, dipshit thinking. We keep this game going, people. The future is not looking bright. It's not looking bright. All right, so here, so here's Stefan Molyneux talking about exactly what I just got done talking about. Is how do you guys think this is going to play out? Where the fist replaces the word. And you don't bring a PowerPoint presentation to a riot. And you keep calling white people racist, and all the, uh, you know all some a lot of us want to do is just have a conversation and try to understand. And you know you, you, when you immediately put people on the f- in uh, fight or flight mode, and reasoned rational logical arguments go out the window. How do you think that's going to play out in the future? You guys think it's going to be good? So here we go. Here's uh, Stefan Molyneux uh, on how it's all going to play out. Because if we say, look, we have this challenge, we have this challenge in society, you never judge individuals, ever, ever, never, ever judge individuals by group averages, but we have this challenge. We, we do have disparate outcomes. Now, we can either sit there and say, well, the only reason we have disparate outcomes is whites hate everyone. How's that? I mean, how, how do people think that's going to play out? I mean, do, do, do people forget Rwanda, the Hutsis and the Tutsis and how much they called each other cockroaches and hated each other. Like the language is so destructive and so divisive and enrages so many people. How do people think it's going to play out? I mean, forget about the satisfaction in the moment of just calling people racist and feeling like a good person in the moment. Mm -hmm. Like forget about that stuff. Forget about that instant dopamine hit of cocaine that you get to pat yourself on the back and virtue signal. How, How is this going to play out when you call hundreds of millions of people Racists and supremacists and haters. How do you think that's going to play out? I mean, just look six months down the road, a year down the road, a couple of years down the road. How's that going to play out? How did it play out in South Africa? Well, not too well. Not too well. And so when people like people who want to create division, who want to bring down the West, who want us to hate each other, who want us to fight with each other and ignore the real powers that be, real conflict is not between blacks and whites. Real conflict is between the people who have political power and the people who are half enslaved through taxation and debt. That's the, but, but if they get us to fight each other, we, we don't look up. We're just horizontally battling. We don't look up and say, look, we're, you know, 
I have, I have way more in common with a black taxpayer than some, you know, pasty white political overlord. We have, we're, we're brothers, man. I've got nothing in common with that white guy who's, who's wielding the gun of the state. The black, the black guy and I, we're brothers, man. We, we're, we're allies. So people who come along with information that can cool ethnic hatred and say, yeah, we got to challenge this sovereign society. Let's talk about it reasonably. Let's examine all the evidence. Let's not jump to conclusions. Let's not blame people for things that aren't their fault, IQ or being white or whatever. It's not, it's not a productive use of people's time. But if you want... All right, so does, does that guy... Does, people, does that guy sound like a racist to you? I have more in common with uh, a black taxpayer than I do with a pasty white political government overlord. I mean, what is he talking about right there? He's telling you about divide and conquer, people. He's telling you that the rich and powerful want us to be fighting each other. And if you are in the game, if you're playing their game, if you're locked into this world of everyone's a racist, misogynist, uh, you know, whatever, fill in your favorite stupid, idiot, progressive slogan. How do you think it's going to play out? It can only end in violence. It, it, I, it's, it's the most, it's such effective brainwashing to, you know, I live in a society where the weakest, stupidest, most coddled, pathetic personality thinks that they're going to overthrow a government and change the world through violence and without logic or reason. And the media did it. Government did it. The intelligence community did it. <laughs> People like Stefan Molyneux, Buck Johnson, Dave Smith, me, uh, Sam Winchester. I mean, you name it. You name it. You name any, any person that talks about the world they live in through the lens of anti-media and anti-public opinion and anti-status quo. We are the enemy because our words are direct threats to the way it is, the status quo, what you hear on TV, what you don't hear on TV, all by design. Um, okay, so here's Stefan Molyneux on why he gets called a racist. <laughs> I love this. I want to talk about you a little bit. Obviously, I, I, I suppose that you know you're a bit of a lightning bolt figure. <laughs> and me saying the great Stefan Molyneux is going to get me some pushback. Because if you say your name with a positive adjective next well, to Well, no. There's, uh, you, you can be great. Without being good, right? Th those Great people, white shark. Anyway. I don't, those people aren't going to make that nuanced. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, was, uh, there, there are a lot of rulers in history who have the great sure, at the end of sure, them. It doesn't sure. mean that they were really good people. But anyway, go on. Yeah, fair enough. You know, people in my circles, the term racism is thrown around quite a bit at us. You know, at this point, that just means you've beat a progressive in an argument, it seems like. 
But why is that term thrown at you seemingly so often? And I've never, I watch your stuff. I listen to your podcasts and I can hear certainly some thorny issues that might ruffle some feathers, certainly, but nothing where I would target you with that word. Why does it get thrown at you? Well, I I don't need to explain that. I mean, the communists have already explained that. And this goes back to the 1940s. So way back in the day, and I've been talking about this for many years, so I'll keep it really brief here in case people have heard it before. But back in, I think it was 1921, the International Association or the Aggregation of the Communists, they said that uh, what we're going to do is we're going to um, heighten and exacerbate racial tensions in order to bring down the West, to bring down the United States. This was their, their goal, right? And... In the 1940s, they were very clear. This is recorded. This is published. This is not a conspiracy theory. It's, it's right there in the public documentation. They say, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to use the word racist as a pejorative to mark people who oppose communism. Right. So that's, that's not particularly complicated. And so the general process has been that you bring in groups that have different outcomes. It could be racial, it could be gender-based, it could be ethnic, and they have different outcomes in a free market. Now, some of those outcomes can be explained by poor parenting, poor nutrition, poor education, a cultural issue. Some of it, no doubt, is to do with racism. And then I bring, and it's not even me who brings this, there's another mix, there's another factor to bring into the mix, which is ethnic or racial differences in IQ, which have been recorded all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. It is about the most settled metric in all of the social sciences. It's very tragic. I mean, it it, it takes a sort of stern soul to look at this information and avoid the sort of sticky and pits of despair, but it is important. It is important to bring into the mix when we're talking about racial issues. And the reason, of course, that um, the left doesn't want you talking about these issues is that they lose a primary weapon which is to say, you know how the left works, right? The left works basically in this repetitive mechanic. They identify any difference in outcome for any group in society. And what they then do is they say, all these differences in outcomes are to do with bigotry, right? So everybody's the same. And therefore, the only reason there could be differences in group outcomes is because of bigotry. And then they end up fighting that bigotry. They end up labeling anybody who provides at least complementary, if not alternative explanations to these different outcomes. They label them as bigots. Only a bigot would say that. Only a racist would say that. Only a person who hates women, a misogynist, whatever it is, right? So they actually are the ones who are incredibly bigoted because they say that all differences in group outcomes result from a bigotry. Well, that's a very bigoted statement because it's not true. There are many other metrics that more accurately predict differences in group outcomes. Is there bigotry in the world? Absolutely. And the biggest bigotry is those who say that all group outcomes result from bigotry. And you understand it's the same thing economically, right? So they say, what is the difference between a manager and a worker, a capitalist and a worker? Well, they say, since everyone is the same, then the only reason that the capitalist or the business owner makes more money is he's stealing it from his workers because somehow magically they would be able to make as much money if there wasn't a factory. Like I was a waiter, right? Carry around when I was a teenager, I was a waiter, carry around a lot of plates of food and so on. And you make a certain amount of money. It's not a huge amount, but it's not terrible. It's not, not a bad job. I was very happy to have it as a teenager. Now you, you carry those, those plates around in the woods, how much money you're going to make. If there's not a restaurant around you, 
right? If there's not somebody paying for the chef and the electricity bills and the 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 building and the property taxes and the, the wages and the, the income taxes for every if somebody hasn't built all this structure around you, you're just carrying around a bunch of plates in the woods, you're not going to make any money at all. And so generally, and it's not always the case, but generally there's an IQ curve, right? The bell curve, right? The people who are the managers tend to be 115 IQ, like a standard deviation about that, standard deviation about 15 IQ points from, from the median, right? And so the managers tend to be a little smarter. They can see a little further. They can um, be a little bit more ambitious. They can learn better. They can retain information better. They can spot patterns faster. And they can uh, do, do things that the people of average intelligence or below average intelligence in general can't do. Now, some people, Harry, <laughs> from the royal family kind of bought into it. And you know, it's not necessarily a mark of intelligence to inherit a bunch of money. But so there is an answer which says, okay, well, the reason why the capitalist gets paid more is he's identified a market issue. He's worked crazy hours for a long time. He's sacrificed spending so that he can save money to build his business. He's taken on a lot of risk because, you know, I knew this. I mean, I had to sign blindingly large debt notes to cover payroll sometimes in my business because we were waiting for a, a contract to come in. And if the business had failed, I would have spent the next 10 years paying that stuff off if I was lucky. So you take on a huge amount of risk that your employees don't. And I worked for free for a long time before I got paid as I did in what I do now and what I did in the software world. So, you know, there's, there's reasons why. There's reasons why. And I'm sure you've heard of the uh, Price's Law, the Pareto Principle is yes. sometimes called two different things, which is that the square root of any group of productive people produces half the value. You've got 10,000 people in the company, 100 of them produce half the value. And 10 of those produce half the value. So you've got 10 people out of 10,000 producing one quarter of the value. Now, socialism doesn't work because it ignores that completely. It says everyone is the same. Everyone's this blank-faced NPC, just dunk, 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 like just like lines of, of grooms in, in the background of a, or lines of, of tuxedoed men in the background of a picture. Everybody's just the same, like thumbprint, blurry-faced Matisse background paintings at the at a regatta race. Everyone's the same. So the only reason that someone makes more than somebody else, given that everyone's the same, is that they're stealing mm -hmm. and they lied. And I, that's the way it works. But it's, everyone's not the same. There are bell curves everywhere. And if you say everyone gets paid the same, you just lose all the productivity of the people who work harder and produce more. It's kind of like the green thumb with gardening. The people that just have this Midas touch. They just, I mean, Elon Musk and, and, and Joe Rogan in podcasts, just this, this Midas touch. There's something that they do, for better or for worse, that just people love it, they want more of it, and they're willing to pay for it. And they're just incredibly productive. The same thing in sports. I mean, if you've ever known musicians, you've got tattoos, you know what musician, you know some musicians. It's kind of, it's terrible. You know what it's like. The musicians are like, I don't know. Um, so back in the day, the police, right? Uh, Sting and, and uh, Andy Sonny, hundreds of sonnets he did. How many plays do people regularly put on of Shakespeare, the greatest literary genius in the history of the planet? Maybe five or six. Every now and then you'll see the Merry Wives of Windsor put on as a curiosity piece. But even the people who are the very best maybe could get a 25% excellence batting record. The people at the, it's just hard to be good at anything. <laughs> Come on. I'm trying to be good at this speech right now. 50-50, right? <laughs> it's hard to be good at anything. And you need a lot of incentives and there's going to be an inequality of outcome. And that's how we advance. Hey, do you feel like having a vaccine? For something, some idiot has got to dedicate his life to doing it to the exclusion of just about anything else. Do you, do you want penicillin? What is it? Is it Alexander Fleming or something? You want penicillin? Well, somebody has got to get obsessed with moldy bread mm -hmm. for like 10 years straight. Even Queen, uh, a great, great recording act, they spent three years coming up with their first album and it kind of sucked. Three years, three years coming up with their, 
first, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine, you know, like 40 minutes of music or whatever, right? So the Marxists, and why, why am I called a racist? Because I'm anti-communist. Because I point out that there are, it's not, you know, I, I hate the one answer people. Like it all comes down to one thing. Because the one answer people are just, they call them the period people. It's just this, mm-hmm. period. All differences in outcomes are due to bigotry, period. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a debate with a guy the other day. It's like, just wear a mask, period. It's like, no, there's no period in life. Man, I, I love it. I love it. And, you know, anytime, anytime you encounter, and I use the Pareto Principle. I don't know if you guys know about what he, what he was just talking about, but the Pareto Principle states that for many outcomes, roughly, it's also called the 80-20 rule. So for many outcomes, roughly 80% of consequences come from 20% of the causes, also known as the vital few. Uh, the law of the vital few or the principle or factor of spare, uh, sparsity. Sparsity? I think I said that right. But, you know, what did he say? He said out of 10,000 employees, roughly 100 of them provide over 50% or the majority of the value for the company. So inequality of outcome, people, is how technology advances inequality of outcome and inequality of ability is how innovation happens people some people are just better than you at certain things own it accept it why is that a threat to you why do you feel like there's something wrong with that i for one am thankful on my knees begging and praying and thanking and giving gratitude to those who are smarter than me at, oh, I don't know, let's see, hmm, what comes to mind? I don't know, maybe vaccines for infectious, contagious diseases? Could you yourself have come up with a vaccine to fight a disease? No, you couldn't have. So aren't you thankful? Aren't you glad that there are people in the world that are smart enough, are good enough, tough enough? Um, you know, willing to be persistent, to do the grueling work, to take the risks, to be courageous, to develop themselves so that they can make fruitful use of their freedom. I'm telling you people, I'm going to keep bringing it. More examples, more smart people quotes. More short stories, more clips from podcasts, videos, etc. I'm going to keep chipping away at you, showing you people that there is a better path. There is a better way for us to be running and organizing and the way that we participate in our society. There's a better way. There is a better path. And I'm trying to show you that path. I'm trying to show you the way. I and many like me are just trying to help. And I really hope that's you people's takeaway from my podcast. I really hope that you you are all smart enough and better than the average person and able to say, you know what? 
Yes, this person's a controversial a controversial person. They say a lot of controversial things. But when you give them five seconds out of your day to actually listen to what some of these people are saying, you may find out very quickly that everything that you thought you were supposed to believe about a person is complete and utter bullshit. And if you don't feel stupid, you know, let's just say, okay, you know what? I don't want to listen to this guy, Stefan Molyneux, because, you know, I heard he's a racist. He's a sexist. Oh, he's uh, he's against the whatever community, right? And then you listen to him for five minutes, like I just played him for you guys. And you're like, wow, this guy has really good ideas. And he's a philosopher. And, and he's really logical and well thought out. And I kind of agree with what he says. If you can't look at that situation and say to yourself, why is it that I'm told, I'm expected by some imaginary construct out in the world I call my TV screen and the media programming. If you're not able to look at that situation and say, wow, there's a concerted effort to keep me stupid, docile, passive, obedient. If you can't see it, people, you're walking through life with blinders on, having tunnel vision. So that's the kind of person you want to be. I mean, by all means, do your thing. Uh, but I prefer, you know, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if uh, more people started caring about actually being smarter than they actually are. I don't know. Fallible hum- humanity. I mean, maybe it is a pipe dream. Here's Molyneux on morality up the yin yang and they didn't really want to do that so much anymore so yeah i hope that does something to circle your your question but yeah i i think we are we're certainly in a post-truth world it's all will to power now this has a lot to do with the fall of christianity and the stymied rise of philosophy right so uh, as christianity began to fail this was the fall this is one of my sort of central ideas was okay so christianity clearly is losing its control over the moral landscape of of the west well, I don't know that we can go back and resurrect it to use a, a phrase that hopefully is not too offensive to, to Christians. So we got to push forward and we got to get to philosophy. And this is why one of the first books I wrote was a universal defense of ethics uh, from a secular standpoint, how to ethics without God's commandments or the government's guns. And I worked really hard to get that out into the libertarian world. Eh, you know, there was some pushback, a lot of indifference and people, they just didn't really understand that, you know, if you're in a ship that's sinking, you got to get to a lifeboat. And UPB, Universally Preferable Behavior, was the lifeboat, which you got to get to. And uh, I guess a lot of people just kind of choose to bubble up and go down with the ship because we have come to a... If ethics, as they are and historically have been in the West, tied so closely into Christianity, if Christianity falls, the ethical center of the West falls, and then what you get is the Nietzschean will to power universe, where deception is simply another strategy to gain resources. Like, you know, this is in nature all the time. You know, we got creatures in nature, they cheat all the time. You know, like the tigers are like, I mean, the, 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 the zebra are like to the tigers, hey man, you got these stripes that makes you blend in with the grass. That's cheating. You got to be up front. You got to announce yourself. And the birds that raise the cuckoo, right? Lays its eggs in other birds' nests. It's like, you're cheating. You're just taking care of the fact that we like big eggs because we don't have a cap out on the size of things that we like. So he's cheating, man. Now, the, the anglerfish down, down in the ocean, they, 
you got a light brighter than my forehead, right? And they, hey, man, we just, you know, you know, we're just curious about light. And then you eat us, that's cheating. Deception and fraud and lying, so to speak, is all over the place in nature. And you take thou shalt not bear false witness out of the moral conscience of mankind. And lying to gain resources is perfectly morally acceptable. It is perfectly morally acceptable. Like, you know, if you're in a dogfight in the Second World War, you know, this was a big thing. I wrote a whole novel about the First World War to the Second World War. Uh, it's available for free if you want, freedomain.com slash almost. And one of the things that would happen is the, if you were attacking enemy fighters, you'd, you'd come with this, you know, the sun would be behind you because, you know, you look around and you can't, you, all you see is the sun. You don't see the flames kind of coming out of the sun, right? Is that cheating? No. Is it fair? Doesn't make, it doesn't mean anything. Fair is for morals. So cheating, you know, if, if you're in an amoral universe, cheating to win an election, Lying about your opponent, if that's going to gain you votes and thus gain you political power, like, you know, the fine people hoax where this mm -hmm. lie was going around since Charlottesville that Trump called neo-Nazis very fine people. It's totally false. Totally false. And the Christians and the moralists and people like myself and others, like, well, that's not true. That's not true. You're cheating. It's lying. But that's only if you live in a moral universe. Yeah. If you live in an amoral universe, deception is perfectly valid. I mean, do you, do you take rubbing alcohol on a on a piece of Kleenex to your date and take off her makeup and say, you're cheating. You're, you're, you're faking fertility symbols to mess with my head, man. No, I mean, makeup is just part of the game. It's a tool of the trade. If, if a guy rents a Lamborghini for the night and then goes out picking up women, turns out he can barely afford the rental. Is he, is he, is he immoral, lying, cheating, wrong, immoral? That's just a dating strategy. It's a mating strategy, right? And, and so when you live, and, and you can see this all the time, all the time, People on the right say to the people on the left, oh, but you had this stance in the past and now you have this stance now and it's totally contradictory and it's hypocritical and the whataboutism. And in the past, there were kids in cages. Now they're children, migrants, facilities with rainbows and, and unicorns and, and all of that. Well, it's like, of course, of course, that's like saying to the, to the cheetah, well, you went really slow and then you went really fast. Which is it? You're, you're contradicting yourself. It's like, no, I went really slow when I was creeping up. When I was close enough to attack, boom, I'm out of the gate like a bat out of the hell, right? And so it's like saying to the lion, well, all you do, I think this is where the word comes from, all you do, you're just lying around, you're lying around, all you do is lying around. And then you move like the wind, which is it? It's like, no, I lie around to conserve energy. Then when I get hungry, I go chase a gazelle and eat its ass off because I need more calories. And then I go back to lying around. So for people who are moral, they look at the people who are amoral and say, well, you keep changing your story. But that's like, look, they're in pursuit of power. Of course, they're going to change mm -hmm. their story. It's like... If you ever seen the videos of like the little rabbits running across the, the tundra and what's the rabbit doing? It's changing directions all the time. And what's the wolf that's chasing it doing? It's changing directions all the time. And all the people on the right are saying to the wolf, well, you keep changing direction. You're contradicting yourself. You go forward, backwards, left, right. No pattern. It's like, no, there is a pattern. <laughs> a very clear pattern. The pattern is they want the rabbit, the rabbit being political power and putting you in cages. So yeah. The fact that they're twisting and turning and changing this, of course they are, because mm -hmm. they live in an amoral Nietzschean will to power universe without ethics. And it's a state of nature. It is nature. And nobody looks at nature and says, well, that animal is totally cheating. You know, that the cat is fluffing up its fur to look bigger. It's not that big. It's cheating. It's like, no, it's that's nature. Cheating is nature is cheating. <laughs> nature is cheating and, and lying and subterfuge and sneaking up. And that's what nature is. I mean, that's why the animals run in a herd. So that they can avoid the predators or kick the predators. I mean, they're not cheating. It's just the game. The game is 
whoever gets the resources wins. And that's where we're heading to. And that's just not a place for moral philosophy in particular. You can identify it as we're doing in the show, but you know, you can't, you can't fix it until morals come back and morals coming back. It's a, you know, it's a lot easier to lose your keys sometimes than it is to find it. And it's a lot easier to lose your morals uh, than it is to, to get them back. Yes. That's a pretty ugly process. Um, okay. So very, very interesting stuff, wouldn't you say? You know, if, if you, if you want to live in an amoral world with no ethics, then progressivism and communism is for you. <laughs> You know, if you want to live in a world with exit, with ethics and with morality, uh, you know, you might need some religion. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, religion hasn't done anything for society. It's only done evil things. And well, I mean, both are true. It's done good things and bad things, just like everything else in the world. The, the, the problem is nobody agrees on the path we need to take to, to fix it. And for a million reasons nobody's not everyone knows the same things not everybody has had the same experiences and that's why we have to teach others and i hope you guys have uh enjoyed this podcast today and that you get you you know you've been getting value out of it and and if you have and you like it please share um please share it please donate uh do do whatever you want to uh spread the word um you know, your worldview is important, people. And, you know, it, it, it's not easy. It's not easy to arrive at how you really feel about things. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes courage. And I hope that you find the courage. I hope that you make the effort. I hope that you choose to be the change you want to see in the world. Instead of pointing the finger at everyone else, expecting them to make the changes. You know, if you're not willing to play the game and live by your own morals and live by your own code that you profess, if you can't, if you can't live it in your own life, then pff, why should anybody listen to you? You know, I mean, I don't know where we're going. And sometimes like Carlin says, you know, maybe, maybe I should just, it's easier to not care. It's easier not to have an emotional stake in the outcome. You know, and I, I've kind of lived by that motto. I just kind of like to stay on the sidelines and observe and report. Hmm, that's very interesting. Oh, look at what this idiot did. Hmm, I wonder why. I wonder how come he did that. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all right, so this, this has been the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast, episode 19. I am Andrew for America. Thanks for listening. Good night, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>